The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au While we're in Isaiah 49 again, and and Isaiah is writing in the 8th century, and he's addressing his message of chapters 40 to 55 to the 6th century Jews. He's doing it in the assumption that they are in exile. God has had enough of their sin, and he's kept his promise in Deuteronomy 28 and 29 to drive Israel out and into exile. Israel, or sorry, Isaiah has given the exiles uh, two examples in chapters 1 to 39 of trusting the Lord. Ahaz, who faced an enemy invasion by not trusting the Lord, and Hezekiah, who faced a greater invasion by trusting in the Lord. Although at first he trusted in Egypt, he heeded Isaiah's message and turned and trusted in the Lord. Now the exiles are faced with two problems that must be resolved. First of all, who will restore exiled Israel, the Jews, back to the land? And secondly, and far greater problem, who will restore sinful Israel back to their God? In chapter 40, or chapters 40 to 50, Try that again. Chapters 40 to 55 present two resolutions to those problems. In chapters 40 to 48, exiled Israel will be restored to the land of Israel by the Lord their God through King Cyrus and his decree for them to return. And then in chapters 49 to 55, sinful Israel will be restored to God through the life the ministry, the suffering, and the death of the Lord's servant, who is Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 49, Isaiah writes as the Lord's servant, recounting his service. He's recounting the servant's preparation for service. He was called and named and made like a sharpened chisel and a polished arrow. He was prepared for service. Secondly, he told us the servant's purpose in all his service, which was to glorify God. He's told us the servant's practice and work, which was to proclaim God's word. And we see all those in the first three verses of Isaiah 49. So the message of Isaiah to the 8th century Judahites and the 6th century exiles is kind of the same. Will they trust the Lord? Will they trust the Lord to restore them to the land? And will they trust the Lord to restore their sinful selves to Him? The message of Isaiah to us in the 21st century, we as Gentiles, is first of all, will we, a sinful, rebellious people, trust the Lord to save us from God's wrath through the suffering of the Lord's servant who is Jesus Christ? Secondly, will we, as saved, adopted servants, trust the Lord in fulfilling the servant's example that He left for us. You know, it's, it's one thing to trust the Lord when the way is smooth and straightforward. It's easy to trust the Lord when the ministry is growing, 
when friends and family are listening and responding, when co-workers are sympathetic and understanding and will perhaps give us a hearing to recounting our faith. But what about when the path is steep and windy? The way is hard and narrow. What about when our world becomes antagonistic? What about when our society and culture disregards, dismisses, and sneers and mocks our faith in God? What about when our ministry is suffering from shrinkage, not growth? What about when friends and family leave and abandon? They want little or nothing to do with us because of our faith in God. That requires a greater, deeper faith. A faith tested by fire. By fire. That requires eyes firmly fixed on Jesus Christ. That requires a looking to Him so that we the distractions of this world, the, the disregard and the, the dis, despising of the world can be ignored. Well, let's read again. Isaiah 49, verses 1-6. to And so we're going to focus our thoughts this morning really on verses 3, 4, 5, and part of 6. And Isaiah writes and says, Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples, from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, He has made mention of my name. And He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand, He has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In His quiver, He has hidden me. And He said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says to form me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. And we trust God will add blessing to the reading of his word. That was Isaiah 49, 1-5. Pardon me. The first question we want to answer this morning from the text is this. Who is the servant, O Israel, referring to? Uh, scholars would tell us there's three possibilities. Isaiah, Israel, the nation themselves, or an ideal, perfect Israel, who is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would confidently state that Jesus Christ is the true Israel of God. But how do we know that for sure? Well, notice in verse number 3, there's a form of parallelism. He says, you are my servant, comma, O Israel. So servant and Israel stand in parallel form or parallel structure to each other. Notice also in verse 6 that Israel the servant is going to gather to restore and to save Jacob and Israel the nation to God. Now that's impossible for anyone but the suffering servant of the Lord to do that. And that of course is Jesus Christ. He is the perfect ideal Israel that the nation should have been but could not be because of their fallen sinful humanity. Hosea in chapter 2 and verse 11, speaking for God, said of the nation, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Then Matthew, in chapter 2 and verse 15, quotes the very same text. And that text is written describing the nation back then. But now he quotes it 
in chapter 2, verse 15, to describe Jesus that he was there in Egypt until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew identifies Jesus as God's son, Israel. And so the Christ, the true Israel of God, came as the Lord's servant to be to all the nations, including the Jews, what the Jews themselves could never be. In verse 3, He came having His mouth prepared as a sharp sword. He He came proclaiming the Word of God, the truth, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His mouth was a sharp sword which pierced into and cut the hearts of men. He laid open all their, all our sin and unrighteousness. Christ preaching and teaching and answers to questions leveled the playing field of all men. He brought us onto our faces before God. The truth was declared and sin was exposed, is exposed. Surely, Surely such a powerful, sharp sword would always know success. Surely at His teaching with His parables and the miracles to display to all that He is the approved of God, He would know unlimited success. But no, He knew a sense of futility in serving the Lord. And our first point this morning is that we trust the Lord in the midst of of the servant's futility. You notice to put that in quotation marks in the bulletin. There's a good reason for that. It's only seeming futility. Christ saw His ministry grow from few to many, to multitudes. He started out alone. He was baptized and He prayed and He was tempted. He came preaching into Galilee. He called disciples. He continuously prayed. He healed diseases and preached and prayed and the crowds followed. He cast out demons and prayed and preaches and great prayed and preached and great crowds followed him. He cleansed lepers and preached and prayed and soon he was limited to preaching in the open places and preaching from boats lest the crowds crush and trample him. He raised the dead. He did miracles. He fed thousands. He prayed and preached. It was any servant's idea of a great success story. But his family did not believe him. They thought he was out of his mind. His hometown and home church tried to push him off a cliff as a heretic. The Pharisees did not believe him. They hated and plotted to kill him. The crowds pursued him, mostly looking for healing and free bread. His preaching of God's truth had an effect. Of course, it brought division and rejected him. rejection. They rejected him because their deeds were evil. They loved darkness and hated the light. He preached, but there was little visible, lasting repentance. Listen to these pivotal verses in John chapter 6 that kind of sketch out a decline for us. In verse 2, there is a great multitude following Him. In verse 60, His teaching was too hard to accept for many. In verse 66, the Bible says that many disciples at that point went back and walked with Him no more. And then in verse 67, Jesus says to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? From great multitudes to twelve. 
with questions regarding even their commitment to Him. During His last meal with His disciples, one left early to betray Him. At the end of the Gethsemane sufferings and His passion in prayer there, all twelve disciples forsook Him and fled as they arrested and bound His hands. At the hour of His greatest need, the deepest sufferings of His soul on the cross, He knew abandonment like no other. His government had turned him over to the Roman military. The military had knowingly scourged and crucified what they declared to be an innocent man. The religious leaders did not comfort, they mocked. Twelve disciples had all fled. One betrayed him and one had denied him three times. His fellow condemned mocked him, although one turned to him at the very end of his life. Even his heavenly Father to exact justice, must forsake Him for a time. And brothers and sisters, we need to remember, He did it for us. He endured all of that so that He might provide a propitiatory offering. He might provide a sacrifice of His own soul, His own shed blood that would appease the anger of God against us for our sin. We have a wonderful Savior this morning who knew what it was to preach and have thousands listen and knew what it was to watch the crowds disperse and depart, who knew what it was to see His closest friends fleeing into the night, who knew what it was to have His closest friend deny even knowing Him three times. And He did it that He might save us. He did it that He might provide an payment for our sin, that He might wash us clean, cleanse our conscience. He might bring us back to God, like it describes here, to gather and restore, to be salvation to all the nations. He went through all of that. It's no wonder, as He recounts His ministry, He can write in verse 4, Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Certainly, Christ did not mean His labor to redeem and to save, to gather the elect of God to His Father. He knew that would be successful. But He's certainly speaking of His three years of public ministry. Now, we know it wasn't futile. But in the middle of that, in His humanity, and in those moments, he could, it can seem like that. To, it must have seemed like that to Him. Christ came... And He entered the experience of humanity to its fullest extent. Christ is certainly far more than any mere man being truly God. But He's also truly man, knowing all that we know, yet without sin. In His humanity, He knew tiredness and hunger and pain and weakness. He knew vulnerability and the frustration of seeming futile work. He knew what it was to be abandoned by friends and feel the emotional pain of that. Yet, yet Christ the Lord's servant continued faithfully. He finished all the work that God had given him. Now, He is the Lord's servant. And we, as believers in Christ, are His servants to follow His example. So how will you and I handle such ups and downs in our lives of service? Especially the downs. 
Will we trust the Lord and faithfully continue to live and to preach truth, to share truth, to communicate truth, however we do it, when the human visible results seem to be little or nothing? Will we trust the Lord and stay faithful when the crowds begin to leave? Will we trust the Lord and stay faithful when friends and family think we're nuts? When all have abandoned us and we're left standing alone, will we trust the Lord and stay faithful when it, se- excuse me, when it seems we're laboring in vain and for nothing? You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards or servants that one be found faithful. Faithfulness is not just required when all is going well. Faithfulness is required when all is even going pear-shaped. And that is exactly what Christ demonstrated for us. He was faithful to His God, His role, and His mission regardless of what was going to happen. Beloved, we are facing some difficult times. We are facing and watching the church steadily and almost irreversibly turning away from biblical truth, turning away from preaching the Gospel, turning away from preaching Christ. And when we see it all happening, when we see people walking out of our churches and walking out of our Bible studies because the way that we are describing is too hard, in those moments, beloved, we have the immense comfort of a suffering Savior who knew all that and far more of what we face. He ministered to a pagan world just as pagan as ours is. We trust the Lord through the seeming futility of ministry. But how? How are we supposed to do that? And the answer is we fasten our eyes on Christ. We look to see His example, to see His steadfastness. We look Consider it walking along a trail. And Christ is ahead of us. And He is walking. And we look up and we fasten our eyes on the back of His head. And we just keep following. And when it gets hard, we look down at His feet and we watch as He takes step after step. And we just keep following. We do so by fastening our eyes on Christ. We look to see His example. To see His steadfastness. We trust the Lord through seeming futility by remembering and trusting God for the results, sorry, for the results and for the reward. We do it fourthly by trusting God for the strength to continue faithfully serving. I want to look at those last two. Remembering and trusting God for the reward and trusting God for the strength. And those are the last two points. So secondly, we trust the Lord for the servant's reward. Let's read verse 4 again. Let's read verse 3 and 4. It works well in context. And he, that's the Lord, said to me, the servant, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. We trust the Lord for the servant's reward. And right here, given to us in that verse, is the servant's faith in God for the reward. Notice, surely my just reward is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. He's finished. 
that statement with yet in full and total contrast to what he has just said, his faith enabled him to continue even though it seemed futile. Surely. Notice that word. We define faith from Hebrews 11 verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the assurance of things not seen. Christ was convinced of His call to labor and the reward that would follow. He knew He had been called in verse 1. He knew He had been named by God in verse 1. He knew He had been sharpened and prepared like a sword, like a polished arrow to be sent into the work. He knew He had His words were truth that He would be listened to. He must be listened to. He knew. He knew He had obediently finished all His Father's work. He knew He had diligently, faithfully executed His servants, His service. And He also knew and was convinced of God's promised reward. His faith was in God. He knew the psalmist's words in Psalm 18, verse 20. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He has recompensed me. He knew. He knew the hope of Psalm 58 and verse 11. Surely there is a reward for the righteous. And you know, when you go to Philippians 2, that great passage, verses 5 to 11, Paul, let's actually go there. I was going to read verses 9 to 11, but I'm actually going to read the whole thing because it's worth it. This beautiful text. I know it's well known, but it's worth hearing again. Let this mind be in you. That's key. He's not just talking about what Christ did. He's saying let us have the same mind, the same attitude. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's his laboring. That's his service. Verse 9. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ was given the great reward. That's the answer to Christ's faith in all of that. In Hebrews 12 and verse 2, it says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ endured the futility, the seeming futility, and the cross in the hope, the confidence of God's reward for him, of his being glorified. Notice verse 5 in Isaiah 49, he says, for I shall be glorious or I shall be glorified in the eyes of the Lord. He knew the hope. He knew the promise. He knew what was going to happen. He was, his faith was in God. He labored not only for the purpose of glorifying God, he also labored knowing that he would be glorified by God. 
He had faith in God for the results of the service and for His reward. So what do we do? What is our response when the journey is long? When the way is hard? When the path is narrow and steep and difficult? We trust God just as surely as Christ did. You say, how? We're not Christ. Well, we'll get to the how in a second. We trust in God. In Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, the Bible, that, that same passage I read earlier, in its fuller sense, says this, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We look in faith for the results of service and for its reward. By faith, we lay aside every weight and the sin. We put off the things that are going to hinder us from serving. We run with endurance. And how do we do it? By fastening our eyes on Christ. By remembering the reward that has been promised to us. We look in faith to God for the result of service and its reward. We look in faith to Christ who set the example for faithfulness and was rewarded. And we follow His example. We remember God's promise of reward. Matthew 5, verses 11 to 12. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I'm not looking at that in the Scripture, but I think we could rightly say, for so they persecuted Christ who went before us. Brother and sister in Christ, it's easy to follow the Lord when things are going well, going our way, when the ministry is showing success, when people are coming, when numbers are growing, when Sunday schools are exploding, and, and all those great things are happening for which we give thanks. But the days are also coming when they were vilest and persecute us and say all kinds of evil against us falsely for His sake. In those moments, we rejoice and be exceedingly glad, knowing convinced, trusting in God for the reward that awaits. In Colossians 3, 23 and 24, Paul said, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember brother and sister, and trust God for the result of service and for the reward. I think we make a mistake when we spend too much time counting numbers and counting the, the world's markers of success. In fact, we make a great mistake when we do that. We preach. We live. We share. We hand out tracts. We talk to neighbors. We do whatever it is that God lays on our hearts in the confidence that He will deal with the results. He will bring the results. He'll bring the fruit in due time. And He'll reward us in due time. Our concern is to be faithful to the message and faithful to the Lord of the message. We look to Christ 
And we labor trusting Him for the strength. In verse 5, we trust the Lord for His strength to serve. Which brings me to my last point. We trust the Lord for the servant's strength. And I want to read verse 5 again. And he says, And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. The first part repeats his calling and his purpose. And the latter part is his strength to serve. 18th century London Baptist pastor named John Gill, one of my favorite writers, said this, God shall be His strength to keep up His spirits under all discouragements, to protect from Him from His enemies, to support Him in His work as man, to carry Him through it and enable Him completely to perform it as He promised He would and as He did. The psalmist in Psalm 89, verses 20 and 21 says, The Lord has found my servant David with my holy oil. I have anointed him with whom my hand shall be established. Also, my arm shall strengthen him. Not only was he called and named and prepared and anointed and sent, he had the promise of God's arm and support to carry him through. Similarly, Psalm 80 and verse 17, the psalmist prays regarding the servant as well as all of us, the Lord's servants. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Christ knew the strengthening, enabling hand of God to uphold, to protect, to support Him through the whole course of His service. And we, the Lord's servants, spirit-filled, yet weak, struggling servants, we also have the great promise of God's strength to enable us to remain faithful throughout the whole course of our service, even when... The way is narrow. The track is steep and windy. And the work of ministry to friends and family and neighbors and co-workers seems futile and pointless. They don't seem to listen. But it's not futile. It's not pointless. God will use it in His time. Even when they hate us and abuse us, laugh and mock and despise us, we trust and fasten our eyes on Christ. Looking unto Christ. He's our example We trust and remember the God who promised our reward. We trust and lean our weight on His arm and continue faithfully only in the strength that He provides. Listen, Christian, to the Word of God and give attention to Scripture. In Psalm 28, verses 7 to 8, the Bible says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in Him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song I will praise Him. The Lord is their strength, and He is their saving refuge of His anointed. Notice the order. I trusted, number one. I'm helped, number two. I rejoice, number three, and I will praise. We begin by trusting. We discover and experience the Lord's help. And our soul responds, our heart responds with rejoicing. And in song we praise Him for His help. The Lord is our strength. 
Psalm 37, verse 39, the Bible says, But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. Good times and tough. Troubled times and calm. He is our strength to get us through. In Habakkuk 3, and verse 19, the Bible says, The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and He will make me walk on high hills. God is our strength to enable us to walk quickly, to walk in high places, to walk amongst God's people and in God's presence. He, will, he is our strength. He will keep us walking. He'll keep us to enable us to finish the race. And lastly, this great passage that deals so wonderfully with trusting the Lord in difficult times. Isaiah 40, verses 28 to 31. Have you not heard? Have you not known? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. To those who have no might, He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait, or those who trust in the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. He gives strength. We trust in Him for the strength to carry on when it seems futile. Remembering the reward and trusting Him for it. So what is the message for us for today from the text? Will we trust in the Lord as we follow His example? Not merely in the glory days of service, but through the valleys of the darkest shadows of service, knowing He's with us through it all. Will we trust and fasten our eyes on Christ, our example? Will we trust and remember God's promised reward for faithfulness? Will we trust and lean our weight on God to continue in His strength? Because, beloved, when we do, when we do trust and fasten our eyes on Christ, when we do trust and remember God's promise of reward, when we do trust and lean on God for strength, we can know that God will be glorified in all our service because it will be plain to all that He is the One who is enabling us to do it. We can know we're presenting Christ to a pagan world. We can know that we'll rise up on eagles' wings. We'll run without weariness and we'll walk without fainting. We will finish the race. We will finish our service faithful to the end. May God help us. May God help us to, to trust Him Loving Father, we thank You and we praise You for the faith that You have given us. We recognize, as the Scriptures would teach, that faith is a gift from You. Father, help us. Especially, Lord, there are some in amongst our number, Lord, that are really struggling in their service. And Father, we know that service is not merely from behind a pulpit or in full time. Lord, serving You is what every Christian is involved in from beginning to end. And Father, some are struggling because it just seems pointless. Nobody seems to be listening. Lord, there is mocking and laughter, jeers of derision. There's insult and abuse heaped. And Father, we pray 
We plead with you, O God, for the strength. We trust you, O God, for the strength to help us finish the race, to help us to walk with you no matter where you lead us. Father, we thank you that every single situation that you bring us into is a gift of your good hand to make us more like Christ, to deepen our faith, to strengthen us for the journey. Father, we thank you. I, Lord, thank you for the message that you laid on my heart. Lord, I know how much I needed to hear this. And Father, I plead for all those watching and listening that you would greatly increase their faith to help them to walk and finish their service all the way to the end. We give thanks, O God, and ask for your blessing in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.